Hello and welcome to the American Sheep Industry Association's Research Update Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Thorne. First, a big thank you to Rosie Bush for taking on hosting duties last month. If you haven't had a chance to catch her episode on Blue Tongue, it is full of great information and I encourage you all to check it out. This month, I couldn't be more excited about the guest that has graciously donated his time to be with us. Greenhouse gases and their impact on the environment is not just a hot-button topic for those in agriculture, but it is one of the defining issues of society around the world. Depending on where you source your information about this complex subject can define your perspective. We are very fortunate to have the Greenhouse Gas Guru, Dr. Frank Mitlerner, who is a professor and air quality extension specialist at UC Davis, to explain fact from fiction and what it means for the American sheep industry. Thanks so much for being here today, Dr. Mitlerner. Well, thank you very much for having me. So before we get into kind of the details of the podcast, uh, would you please tell us how you became interested in, in studying greenhouse gas emissions and how maybe that led to your current role? Yeah, so I'm a professor and air quality specialist. I've been here at the University of California in Davis uh, for the last 21 years, and that's my area of expertise to study the impact animal agriculture has on air and climate. So... We're going to talk about some kind of complex vocabulary and, and subject areas, but maybe for some brief background information to get going, what are greenhouse gases and why are they such a, a big deal? Yeah, greenhouse gases are mainly three, carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrous oxide. And these three greenhouse gases have the ability to trap heat from the sun. In other words, um, if a... Sun, a solar beam hits those molecules, then they heat up um, and trap the heat, much like a beverage container like a China cup or a Starbucks $20 insulated cup keeps your coffee warm. These molecules keep the, the heat from the sun uh, trapped. And uh, that's actually an important function. Without greenhouse gases, life on Earth would not be possible. It would be too cold. Um, but the problem is, humans are producing too many of them. And that means too much of that solar heat is trapped, and that's why that warming occurs. Okay. So you, you named kind of the big three greenhouse gases. What are the differences between them? So the first one, the carbon dioxide, is mainly related to the burning of fossil fuels, oil, coal, and gas. Um, over the last 70 years, uh, seven zero that is, we have extracted about half of all oil, coal, and gas from the ground. We've burned it and therefore put something that was in the ground for millions of years into the atmosphere. And every time the sun hits those molecules, they heat up. And that's what people normally refer to when they talk about carbon emissions. But then there are uh, two other greenhouse gases. One is methane. And uh, it is true that methane is much more powerful per molecule than CO2 is in trapping heat. It's almost 30 times more powerful in trapping heat. So that's the difference between a styrofoam cup versus a Starbucks $20 insulated cup in keeping your coffee warm. Okay, So the one, the methane, keeps the heat much better than CO2. And um, that's a big difference. Um, but what is also a difference is that once CO2 carbon dioxide is in the air, it stays there for about a thousand years. And that's in sharp contrast to methane, uh, which stays into the atmosphere for only 
about a decade and then it's destroyed um, and that's the end of that gas and that happens as i said in about one decade nitrous oxide is also a long-lived climate pollutant similar to a co2 it has a lifespan of over 100 years and it is way more powerful than both co2 and methane but for bizarre reasons uh, that i can't explain nobody talks about it much it is about 265 times more potent than co2 oh wow Okay, so where does animal agriculture or the animal agriculture sector rank as far as global emitters of greenhouse gases? So globally, the United Nations FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization, is the entity that uh, quantifies those uh, contributions of agriculture. And they, uh, back in 2006, said that livestock globally contributes to 18%, one eight. Uh, later, they revised that to 14.5. And uh, most recently, and I mean, as of this year, they went down to 11%. So uh, uncertainties are always there. And I understand that. But they went out with this 18% number. Um, and it actually started the whole big discussion. And uh, since then, the horse had left the barn, and it's hard to get it back in. So globally, it's 11% of all greenhouse gases being associated with livestock in the United States. It's 4% of all greenhouse gases in our country here being associated with livestock. Okay. So why does it seem like animal agriculture often gets labeled as one of, if not the major cause of, of global warming? Well, um, <laughs> the people who painted as such are generally those that always had a beef with animal agriculture, no pun intended. Yeah. Um, originally, they were more on the animal welfare, animal rights side of things. They found that that didn't resonate as well with the public as the climate discussion does. And here, uh, people conflate so many topics, um, for example, by saying, oh, we need to take care of uh, our impacts the impacts of food on climate because about a quarter of all global greenhouse gases are associated with it. Uh, and then they uh, move from there straight to livestock. Um, and that makes it sound as if livestock emissions would make up a quarter of our total emissions. And that's just simply not true. It is not true. And uh, whether you ask the Environmental Protection Agency or the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, they will all tell you it's not true. But uh, it is a bunch of activists that are tooting these numbers, and it is much of the mainstream media that is portraying it. And that is uh, highly concerning to me because it sidetracks us from the root causes of a changing climate and the major culprits and uh, places the blame where it's not supposed to be. Right. Okay. So maybe to focus more specifically on, on sheep. Sheep uh, seem to tend to, to fly under the radar, but how do they compare to cows as far as emissions? You are right. They do fly under the radar. Uh, and the reason is that the numbers are relatively small. Um, the populations are relatively small. Um, but they are as much a ruminant producing methane as dairy and beef cattle are. Um, so they have the unique ability 
of converting the world's most abundant biomass, which is cellulose, and that cellulose is the carbohydrate contained in grasses and other forages. And they make that non-human edible cellulose into human edible and highly nutritious food. So this is, first of all, close to a miracle, okay? Um, without ruminants, and that includes, of course, sheep, humanity would not be able to make use of two-thirds of all agricultural land. That is not suitable for crop production. The only thing that grows on that land is cellulose-containing forages. Sheep are able to convert that cellulose into meat, into wool, and so on. And uh, what drives it, what powers the process is photosynthesis and pretty much sun powering it. Um, to me, a very important uh, service and um, one that we can't do without because we have to uh, understand that humanity is continuing to grow uh, from what it was in 1920, that was 2 billion people, to now, uh, let's say in, 19, uh, in 2050, we will have close to 10 billion people. So at least a quadrupling, not if not more, of human population throughout one century. And uh, without ruminant livestock, we'll not be able to feed those people. Sure. Is there a stage of sheep production where there tends to be more emissions uh, of greenhouse gases? Well, in general, it is the use uh, that that are grazing on pasture um, that are the main source of emissions. And here the, the process is what's called enteric emissions. Enteric emissions refers to the belching uh, that occurs when the methane builds up in their rumen and the gas uh, is expelled through through that process of burping or belching. That's the main, that's the main part of the, um, the sheep supply chain emissions. Okay. So you, you've talked about ruminant animals so far. W what is the difference between ruminants and, and monogastrics in terms of their uh, enteric emissions? So the big difference is that methane is generated under anaerobic conditions, okay? So once you have oxygen in the environment, methane will not be formed because the microbes that form methane um, do not tolerate oxygen. These are called archaea and protozoa, and they populate the digestive tract, the rumen of the ruminant animals, and help the ruminant animal digest cellulose. Um, as you know, um, a ruminant animal has a four-chambered stomach, and um, and this first part, the, the rumen itself, is very large in volume, allowing the animal to eat a lot and then rest and and ruminate over, yeah. <laughs> ruminate over this uh, this meal, um, and um, and then ferment it, um, and that's the work of these microbes. Uh, a monogastric animal does not work like that. A monogastric animal has a stomach, an acidic stomach, followed by a small intestine, a large uh, uh, intestine, similar to, to humans. Um, monogastric animals do not um, or are not capable of digesting cellulose like ruminants are. Um, they have to have a diet that's much more close to our diet, uh, the human diet, containing way more concentrates. So ruminants are unique in so far that they can, can digest non-human edible stuff, roughage, 
fiber um, and make that into the products we all enjoy. Uh, monogastric animals are more of a competitor to human foods. Sure. Okay, so we've we've talked a little bit about sheep and, and cattle as being emitters of, of greenhouse gases. Do you see any opportunities in sheep production to actually sequester these gases? Yes, there are several ways that uh, sheep production um, can have positive impacts. Uh, I'll give you one right now. Um, you have heard about those wildfires in Canada. Yeah. These wildfires over the last year have produced so much carbon emissions that these carbon emissions that were blown into the air through the burning of these, this vegetation have undone 10 years of greenhouse gas mitigation of Canada. One year of wildfires. Guess what one of the best ways is of preventing wildfires. It is fuel reduction. And when I say fuel reduction, I mean reduction of the stuff that actually uh, burns, yeah. uh, which are uh, old and, and uh, you know, old grasses, old vegetation. Um, sheep, goats, cattle are ideal in preventing that fuel from accumulating. Um, and, and that's one way that sheep production can partake in reducing uh, what could become very significant carbon emissions. The second one is that the manure of sheep and other ruminants, when added to dirt floor, to dirt ground, um, will increase the fertility of that dirt, of that ground, and make a dirt into a soil, with the difference being that the soil has a much higher microbial activity in it, one that allows those microbes to take the carbon that plants had sucked out of the air during photosynthesis uh, and that then are stored in the roots, take those carbon uh, molecules and secure them in the ground. And that's called soil carbon sequestration. It is a beautiful thing. It traps about one-third of all human-caused carbon, the process of soil carbon sequestration. And our friends, the sheep, can help make that happen. Absolutely. Okay, so when I was doing some of my um, research ahead of this podcast and trying to read a bit, uh, it seemed that the terms GWP100 and GWP star kept coming up. Would you mind explaining what those are? Yeah, now it gets a little technical, I have to warn you. Uh, the way that these three greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrous oxide, are generally compared to one another is through a way that, um, let's call that a, um, a matrix that was established back in 1990 called Global Warming Potential 100. Uh, it simply says that one molecule of methane is 28 times more powerful than one molecule of CO2. And it says that one molecule of nitrous oxide is 265 times more powerful than one molecule of CO2. What it does not take into consideration is the fact that there is a very significant atmospheric removal of methane that I alluded to before, meaning there's a process that kills methane. GWP100 does not account for that in its full form and that means that it exaggerates the impact of constant sources of methane on warming 
And as a result of that shortcoming, colleagues from the University of Oxford in the UK developed an alternative, one that does account for the fact that this gas, methane, is not just produced, but also destroyed. And this new matrix is called GWP star. It actually does account for the impact a source, let's say cattle or sheep or rice paddies, um, have on actual warming. So it does not just convert emissions of methane into CO2 equivalents, which GWP100 does, but it actually describes what the impact of these industries are on actual warming. And that's what it's all about. The reason why we care about greenhouse gases is not because they constitute a carbon equivalent amount of gases. That's not why we care about it. We care about it because they warm our planet. Yeah. And GWP100 does not describe that. GWP star does. I'm very hopeful that GWP star will um, replace in the near future the use of GWP100. And when it does, when it is being used, it shows a totally different picture of the impacts our livestock industries have on warming. Okay, great. Now, is there an emissions target or goal for animal agriculture, either globally or in the United States? And is that commensurate with some of the other sectors? Um, there are significant differences across sectors. Um, all of those sectors like transportation, power production and use and so on, uh, they are CO2 producers. And um, for them to stop warming or contribute to additional warming, the use of fossil fuels has to stop. Now, how difficult that is, you can, ima you can imagine. Um, you know, stop the burning of oil, coal and gas is not a single exercise. But that is what would have to happen to stop additional warming from fossil fuel sources producing CO2. For methane sources, they do not have to go to zero. Uh, what they have to do is they have to reduce methane by something like 30%, approximately 30%, 3-0, over the next 20 years or so. Because when you reduce methane, then you replenish less of that gas then it's destroyed, naturally destroyed. And that means you're now going down, I mean really going down, in total amounts of methane in the atmosphere. And that means you're going down with warming. A reduction of methane reduces warming. And that's where we want to be. That's where we want to go. We want to reduce warming. And for animal agriculture, it means we have to make uh, reductions. We do not have to go to zero like the fossil fuel sector has to, but we have to show uh, something like at least 0.3% reductions annually. And when we do, when we reduce methane by 0.3% annually, then we do not contribute additional warming to our planet. If we go beyond that, let's say to 1% per year or so, then we reduce warming in total. And that is a great premise because what that means is that our animal agricultural sector can become part of a climate solution. That is something that people are, who are opposed to animal agriculture are fiercely opposing to. Okay? They do not like the science behind it, either because they don't understand or because they feel that one of their favorite 
um, topics to counter animal agriculture is getting lost. Sure. Now, this next question, I, I mean, this might be a semester's worth of information that I'm going to ask you to, to answer in, in one short question. Uh, but how do you see uh, ag policy um, by the government maybe adapting over the next 10, 20, 30 years in order to reach these benchmarks that you've suggested? Now, let me tell you this. I do travel a lot internationally. Um it's not unusual for me to travel 20, 30 countries in, in a year. And uh, what I see internationally, internationally first, is that many governments uh, in an attempt to reduce emissions from agriculture, from animal agriculture in particular, um, decided to go the cane approach of using rules, regulations, fines, maybe taxes. And I call that the cane approach because that's really uh, the approach of forcing farmers to reduce emissions. Uh, New Zealand is one example with their methane tax. So if you if you have ruminant animals on your farm, you pay a methane tax there. The the Irish are thinking about reducing two hundred thousand cattle to reduce their carbon footprint. The Dutch are even more uh, aggressive around farming emissions. So that's the that's the cane approach. Here in California, we don't use the cane approach. We use the carrot approach, which means we use a voluntary incentive-based approach that encourages farmers to reduce emissions, and when they do, they get rewarded. They get paid for it. And surprise, surprise, the carrot approach works, the cane approach does not. We have seen that our farmers here in the state of California, particularly our dairy farms, and that's the most important agricultural sector in the state has achieved 30% of its reduction goal already. And they just started. They just started a few years ago. The goal is to reduce approximately 7 million metric tons. They have already reduced 2.5 and they will achieve the 7 million metric ton reduction by the year 2030. Our farmers are showing that it can be done. It will be done. And our governments are uh, amazed how well it's being done. So now the rest of the world is seeing that and they are thinking about copying and pasting that. Sure. That's great to hear. Now, in the greenhouse gas world that you are a part of, I can imagine that there are biases that prevent folks on both sides from seeing and understanding the true facts about emissions and environmental impact. As someone with your platform, how do you approach the preconceived notions of your audience and help them to have a more objective perspective? Well, that's the million dollar question. <laughs> you know, I'm a, so first of all, we all have our biases. Okay. Yeah. And, and I include myself. I try to limit those, but everybody has them. Um, I have noticed that the people who shout the loudest around livestock and climate are those who previously shouted something else that was anti-livestock, uh, maybe li livestock welfare related or animal rights related or you name it, housing related. Um, the climate topic to them is relatively new and many of them might be well-meaning but are not well-schooled in this field. So we do our best in breaking down and explaining very well, I believe, um, 
the details around how livestock actually contributes to a changing climate, um, what ways they can choose farmers and ranchers, that is, to reduce emissions. And um, some of them want to listen. Uh, most farmers want or do listen and ranchers do listen and uh, many of them make changes. Um, the anti-people um, don't really want to listen. They think this is a bunch of greenwashing. Farmers can't really reduce emissions in their view. And what they um, offer as a solution is that we all become vegetarians and vegans, and that's not going to happen. Uh, as of today, 97% of all refrigerators in the United States contain animal source foods. 97%. But you hear from the very small minority such loud protest and um, campaigns that the public starts believing there's a major movement going on. That is not a major movement. It's relatively small, and it will stay that way. Now, reading your blog, I noticed uh, a statement that you made about agriculturalists, ranchers, farmers, generally wanting to be a part of the solution. And, and you've just alluded to that uh, in your answers just a second ago. In what ways has uh, the production ag industry implemented changes to reduce emissions? If, for example, the 30% reduction uh, that you mentioned in, in dairy farms, how, how did they achieve that? So there's no simple answer to this. I can tell you this. Um, different sectors of agriculture have been um, approaching this topic in different ways. The most aggressive industry that I can tell uh, has been the dairy industry. Um, they have worked really um, aggressively, if I may, may use that term, um, in in taking this this topic on. Here in California, we have a law that mandates a 40% reduction for zero of methane to be achieved by the year 2030. I told you um, that the state uses a voluntary incentive-based approach, and that means that the state says we want our farmers to take the methane that comes from manure storages, meaning from dairy lagoons, for example, and instead of having these lagoons open, we want them to be capped. And then these capped lagoons, these covered lagoons, trap the gases that normally would go into the air, a gas mixture called biogas, 60% of which is methane. So that methane, which, by the way, is nothing other than pure energy, much like the energy that you use to heat your home or cook your meals, that methane is being trapped, is cleaned up, and then made into transportation fuels. So something that used to be a liability, which is gases emanating from the lagoon into the air, are now no longer a liability because they're not getting into the air, but they are converting into a utility into an asset, which is transportation fuels. And the farms that previously sold milk and other dairy products now also sell fuels to the transportation uh, fleets. And that's a real great uh, success story, I think. Um, if you think about California spending of all the money um, that is earmarked to reduce methane, about 2% uh, into the dairy sector. So 2% of all public funds uh, to reduce methane in California go into the dairy sector. 
but these 2% investments have led to 30% of all methane reductions in the state funded by public needs. A 2% um, investment has led to a 30%, 3-0 reduction of methane, a 15x return on investment. It's mind-blowing. Yeah, that's Now, other, other sectors have to catch up, but the dairy industry has gone, uh, gone in first. That's that's awesome. Now, should or could the U.S. sheep industry follow this kind of uh, model or, or protocol of success of the dairy industry by taking you know similar steps? Well, I don't think that there will be any sector uh, that will be underneath the radar. Okay, I can tell you here in the state, uh, the focus is clearly on dairy. Um, the emissions are seven point two. Uh, the beef sector is the second impo most important one. It's 1.8, so 7.2 for dairy, 1.8 million metric tons for beef. The beef sector so far was under the impression that maybe they will slide under the radar, but they are not going to. It's just that agencies first work on dairy and then they will move on down the, yeah. down the chain. And so I will encourage everybody to use the time wisely and find out, for example, through research, what are our contributions to this topic? How can they be mitigated under our conditions? And um, please know this, it's not likely for anybody to slide under the radar because they first go after the big emitters and then it gets um, to the other ones. Sure. Now, internationally, I think in New Zealand, there has been a push for reducing methane production from sheep through genetic selection. Uh, would you be able to, to speak on that at all? Yeah, I don't know about the, uh, this approach for the sheep industry, but I do know that um, it's worked on for the dairy industry. Uh, I, had, uh, I had the honor of giving a keynote uh, address at a large company that does genetic and genomic um, um, that produces tools, and they found that uh, a variable called milk MIR is highly correlated to enteric methane. And what that means is that they can do a genomic test, taking a little snip out of a cow's ear, and then determine whether or not this cow is a low or high methane producing cow. And then they can take that information and only select for, low, for breeding with low methane producing cows and not with the high methane producing peers. And that would, in a relatively short time, uh, have a very sizable impact on uh, herd size emissions, uh, approximately 30%. And this reduction would be permanent. So I think that something like this should work, uh, not just for dairy, it should work for beef, it should work for sheep. I do think that there will be um, EPDs for methane in the future to come. Okay. Thinking of other ways to, uh, re uh, to reduce methane production, what research specifically maybe in the area of feed additives is being done that uh, you believe will be impactful to agriculture, animal agriculture, as we adapt to a future uh, where greenhouse gases are you know, the major issue? So we just mentioned one that's breeding, okay? Breeding for low methane emitting animals, that's one. Second one developed in New Zealand is a methane vaccine. Now, how close that is to um, 
to prime time, I don't know, but they're working on a on a on a vaccine for methane. Another one is a bolus, which is pretty much a capsule that you put into the rumen of that animal, slowly releasing an active ingredient that reduces enteric methane. Um, some of them are on the market, and I think um, there is a good role for those because these boluses can be used under grazing conditions. Uh, because as you know, use of feed additives for grazing animals is more tricky. Because if you don't have access to a grazing animal like a sheep, that's someplace in New Zealand or in Australia or who knows, in Colorado or so, grazing is a little life away, um, you know, you just don't have daily access to those animals. But you do need to get a feed additive into an animal every day. And so um, to those producers that do have access to the animals every day, there are um, feed additives in and under development. Uh, some of them inhibit methane formation uh, enzymatically and others change the microbiology in the rumen. So some of them are called methane inhibitors and some of them are called rumen modifiers. So to summarize that, animal breeding um, animal breeding is one technique. Another technique is potential vaccination. Another one is the use of boluses. And a fourth one is the use of feed additives. Um, I think there's uh, room uh, for all four in the area of sheep production as, as, as it is for, for dairy and beef. Sure. Okay. Now, if a sheep operation is interested in calculating their emissions or their carbon footprint, if you may, what things do they even measure? How do they even go about that? Yeah, so you have to measure those things that are main sources, and that's uh, enteric, enteric emissions, meaning what the animal's bells is, number one. And uh, rather than measuring those from your individual animals, there are some pretty good estimates as to how much a sheep will produce. What you need to know is pretty much how much your animal eats and how much of that is roughage. And then you can calculate pretty accurately uh, what your herd size emissions will be. Um, then the other thing is, what is your soil carbon? Um, do you have rich soils? Do you have poor soils? Uh, that determines what your soil carbon sequestration rate can be. Um, you need to know what kind of forages your animals uh, eat on. Uh, so those are main contributing issues that uh, need to be quantified. And um, the biggest challenge right now is that there are an unbelievable number of different calculators. Yeah. And they're not all doing the same thing. Some of them uh, give you a very narrow assessment. Others look at the entire life cycle from cradle to grave and so on. So... It is the Wild West out there, out there right now, and people select whatever tool they use based on what they want the outcome to be. I think it's very important uh, here in the United States and internationally that we have globally acceptable life cycle assessment tools. Uh, just imagine a TurboTax for when you do your tax, right. something like this for emission calculations, okay? Yeah. Like um, a calculator... Uh, that similar to a TurboTax uh, allows you to enter certain variables of your farm, your ranch, and then it tells you here are areas of emissions and here's what you can do to reduce those. Sure. 
Well, that leads right into my next question uh, that I was thinking about uh, as you're talking there. Let's say someone is successful in making that calculation. Uh, you know, how, how do they even interpret that number? Do, do they know what is good and what is a bad? And, and you know, where do they go from there? Yeah. Um, that's a, that's a tough one. I, probably. Think, <laughs> I think, I think the greatest value you get out of something like this is um, that rather than setting yourself apart from the rest of the industry, um, which is always a tricky business by saying, Oh, I'm better than my neighbors. So I'm better than, you know, I'm organic and you're not. And you know, blah, blah, blah. Rather than doing that. I think the greatest value is in um, knowing how you have improved so that you can say compared to five years ago, 10 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, I have reduced emissions by X. Why is that important? That's important because all of a sudden I see that there are major customers and clients such as Sam's Club and McDonald's and Walmart and so on, who find that their main emissions, the main emissions associated with their businesses, um, reach back to the farms that produce the goods that they sell. And so they, the Nestle's, the Starbucks, the McDonald's, the Sam's Clubs, and so on, if they want to reduce the food-related footprints of the products they sell, then they have to get information from the farms. And so they are now leaning on the farms to develop emission estimates and ways to reduce emissions. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, I have just one more 30,000-foot question for you. Do we, as a society, need to change our diets to prevent climate change? Well, I absolutely think that we don't. Um, I've had a lot of contact with people who do these kind of calculations. And um, two of the ones that were um, that are very often cited and that published their work in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, one of the most prestigious journals in the country and in the world, uh, they did the calculation um, to the extreme. They said, so what would happen if an omnivore, somebody eating a normal balanced diet, um, goes vegan for a year? How much would that save with respect to carbon emissions? And what they found was somewhat surprising. What they found was that if you, an omnivore, were to go vegan for one year, that would save 0.8 tons of carbon emissions per year. Now you might ask, is that a lot or not? Contrast the 0.8 tons for going vegan for one year with one passenger flight from the U.S. to Europe. That one flight, which I'm about to do next week, generates 1.6 tons of carbon emissions. In other words, I would have to go vegan for two years to offset one passenger transatlantic flight. And that tells you whether or not that impact would be huge or not huge. Uh, it's up to your individual interpretation. Uh, if the entire country, the entire United States were to say, we are going plant-based, entirely plant-based for one day a week, 330 million Americans, then that would reduce our carbon footprint by 0.3% of all greenhouse gases. That tells you pretty much how much or how little of our carbon footprint is associated with the consumption of animal source foods. Yeah. Now, your work is helping production agriculture across the world. 
where can our listeners go to learn more about what you're up to in your research? So I'm the director of what's called the CLEAR Center, C-L-E-A-R, CLEAR. And if you go to clear.ucdavis.edu, then you will find a webpage with many blogs, with many explainers, with uh, YouTube links and so on. And I would strongly recommend that because many people find it quite useful. Uh, if you're on social media, uh, so are we. Um, for example, GHG stands for Greenhouse Gas. GHG Guru is my handle on Twitter. Um, I have approximately 20 million impressions every year. That means 20 million times uh, um, will my Twitter handle be um, touched every year by, you know, I don't know how many people. Um, and that just shows you how much interest there is in this field and also the credibility and notoriety that we have in this area. Uh, we are very proud uh, to be working with our agricultural sector. We view our agricultural sector as important as our health sector. And I think health and food are the two most important aspects of any society. We owe it to our farmers to work with them and not against them. We owe it to our farmers to provide them with solutions and bring those solutions to them in ways that they understand, appreciate, and that help them to become even more sustainable. Really, really cool to hear. Can you leave our audience with one overarching take-home message from our discussion today? Yeah, so first of all, the fact that people are listening to this shows that there's interest. I know there's interest. Uh, I know there's also fear. I tell you what, if you are a farmer, don't fear these discussions. Own them. Sustainability is not a curse word. Sustainability is nothing other than stewardship. Sustainability, just like stewardship, includes the values of improving environmental quality, optimizing animal welfare, having good food safety on your, in your products, uh, providing the best um, care of the people who work with you, and of course, having financial stability. Both or all five of those sustainability pillars are also the pillars of stewardship. You, more than anybody else, should own those terms and what is behind them, because that is your legacy and it's for you to be proud of it, to defend it, to stand behind it. All right. As we wrap up, I want to say on behalf of ASI and American sheep producers, we are very appreciative of your relentless pursuit of the truth in a space uh, that certainly doesn't make that effort easy all the time. Uh, so thanks for taking the time to, to share your expertise with us today, Dr. Mittlerner. You're most welcome. Thanks for having me. Listeners, as always, we appreciate you joining us as well and helping uh, to make the Research Update podcast a success. If you've enjoyed this episode, I kindly request you share it on your social media uh, to help us continue to reach more sheep enthusiasts across the country. Until next time, remember to eat lamb, wear wool, and save the planet. Simple enough. Have a nice day.